In the fall of 2004, one of the most prophetic messages ever preached from a Grace Chapel pulpit was delivered by Sung Chan Ra, a young Korean-American pastor of a multi-ethnic church plant in Central Square in Cambridge. He had been invited to preach at Grace Chapel as part of our annual Cultural and Urban Awareness Weekend, a weekend designed to raise the awareness of the increasing diversity within our congregation and in the region. He preached from Micah 4, a rich passage about the last days where nations would stream to Jerusalem as they followed the word of the Lord. But there were also some difficult parts of his message because in Micah 4, it talks about power sharing and those that have been left out or marginalized, not only by society, but sometimes in the church itself. Some said afterwards it was the best message that they had ever heard. There were a number of people that said, wow, I was really challenged by what he had to say, but I knew it was a message that I needed to hear. And then there were a few that were so offended by some of the things that were said that they actually got up and walked out of the sanctuary. That sermon changed the traje trajectory of our church. Pastor Brian embraced that call from Micah 4 that Sunday, and he invited David Jebaratnam, who was our missions pastor at the time, and myself to figure out how can we respond to that message we engaged over 50 leaders from a variety of ethnic backgrounds in focus group discussions. And from that, the Multicultural Church Initiative was birthed and it was approved by the Board of Elders in the spring of 2005. Today, over 30% of our congregation are from cultures other than those of Western European descent. And that is a unique fact. Less than 15% of the congregations across the United States have even 20% of their congregation from other than the dominant culture. But within that first year, we learned that this was not actually going to be an easy journey. I had been told that it was a marathon, not a sprint. And it was a seemingly insignificant incident that would teach me and others how to learn to listen and to listen well, to listen deeply to the experiences of the people that God had brought into our very midst, for I knew that he had drawn them. Up to that point, it wasn't anything that we were doing. God had a unique work to do among us. That ability to listen well would become an important foundation for where God wanted to take us as a church. At the opening of the new Community Life Center at the original campus, there was a beautiful mural that was painted for the new kids town area. The artist had incorporated a diversity of skin tones and hair colors in the characters in that mural, seeking to represent the growing diversity in our midst. But one day, someone called me and said that a young Asian American woman in their life community was offended by one of the characters in the mural but she didn't feel comfortable approaching me or anyone else in the leadership that day. That conversation that day would lead us on an important journey over the next year, a journey that parallels in many important ways one of the stories of the early church in Acts following the amazing events of Pentecost. As most of you know, we're taking a pause here in the month of May to wait on God. 
and invite him to do whatever he wants to in our midst so that we can move forward in his power and for his glory. And we've actually now decided to extend that time again a few more weeks into June. We just continue to believe that God has more for us about the Holy Spirit from his word. The first week of May, Pastor Brian talked about and encouraged us to develop a spirit of expectancy, and I think we've all felt that over this time through prayer and attentiveness. And then two weeks ago, Pastor Ruthie spoke about yieldedness. We sang the song, I Surrender, this morning, being ready and willing to answer the call of God on our lives. And last week, at that amazing One Church Sunday that we celebrated earlier in the service, Brian talked about that the Spirit falls when there is an unashamed commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, this morning I want to press a little bit further into one of those words that Pastor Brian talked about in his sermon the first Sunday, attentiveness. This sermon series is titled, More. More life, more love, more spirit. And attentiveness, I believe, is probably the most important thing to help us to press into the middle word, love what we heard a lot about in the video just a few minutes ago. If we want more love, if we want to learn how to love more, we have to be attentive to the Holy Spirit, to the guidance of the Holy Spirit, because it's the Spirit that helps us to sift through all those incredible competing demands that come at us from so many directions, something I experienced myself this week as I was even preparing for this sermon, so that we are able to do what is most important to do, the things that will matter most in the light of eternity, not the things that will pass away, the things that flow directly from the heart of God, not just from our head. One Church Sunday was amazing, and I, as I've listened to people all this week, it's just been incredible to hear the language that they've been using because it sounds like the New Testament church. God did remarkable things. He's amazing, the mighty works of God. We might as well have walked out of the pages of Scripture after last week. So even though God led me to this passage from Acts several weeks ago, I became convinced as I continued to prepare this week that this is the message for this morning. Because when we see God work in amazing ways, we then have to figure out how to go back to ordinary, everyday life. But before we get to this passage in Acts 6, we need to actually have some context from the earlier chapters. Last Sunday, Pastor Brian shared with us the Apostle Peter's bold proclamation that resulted in 3,000 people being baptized. We were in awe of what God did in pouring out those 80 to, uh, spontaneous baptisms. Can you imagine what it was like as 3,000 people were baptized? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And then we read these words. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So it wasn't just after that big, bold proclamation. Their life together attracted more people into their midst. 
And then in the next two chapters of Acts, we find this pattern of bold proclamation by Peter. Once again, this time he's before the Sanhedrin after healing a crippled beggar. And yet again, it's followed by a description of the life of the community of believers. A pattern I had never noticed before, this alternating pattern back and forth. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of them that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Daily life. The historic church calendar is filled with special events. Advent, Epiphany, Ash Wednesday, Lent, Easter, Ascension Day, and Pentecost. And then comes this really amazing time called ordinary time. Now, ordinary in that setting doesn't mean what we normally think of. It actually comes from the word ordinal, which simply means counted time. But as I've reflected on it, I've actually come to love the literal meaning of ordinary time. We all need ordinary time after special events and not just for religious events. Ordinary time happens after graduations and wedding, weddings and the birth of a child. I really needed ordinary time after the birth of my children to get adjusted to the lack of sleep and to the new responsibilities that I had. We can't live on spiritual and emotional highs as much as we'd like to. I think many of us would love to just continue to ride the wave of last weekend, but we have to return to ordinary life. And the question is, can we keep connected with God in that ordinary life? So while ordinary time has challenges, it's also a time when God does probably the most significant work in our lives. We may feel God's presence more in the big events like One Church Sunday, but it's in that day-to-day activities where God builds our character and his kingdom. Jocelyn recently shared a song by Sarah Groves with our Kidstown volunteers, and I thought it really captured this idea well. In the mundane tasks of living, in the pouring out and giving, there's a little stone, that's a little mortar, That's a little seed, that's a little water. In the hearts of the sons and daughters, the kingdom is coming. So as much as we ought to and do enjoy Sundays like One Church Sunday, we need to be just as attentive to the presence of the Holy Spirit every week of our lives. So as I prepared, I discovered three ways that I see where attentiveness to the Holy Spirit finds expression in our ordinary time, in our ordinary days. The text says in chapter 2 that the believers had everything in common. And then in chapter 4, it says something very similar. They shared everything they had. So the first thing we learn is, is that when we're attentive to the Holy Spirit, we become unified in heart and soul. God draws us together as a community as we allow ourselves to become unified under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. All the believers were one in heart and mind. The original Greek actually uses the word soul instead of mind, and I like that better because it captures actually a much broader sense of unity. It's about our desires and our feelings and our emotions, not just what's in our head. In its own way, 
that statement is just as dramatic as the tongues of flame and fire and the speaking of all the languages at Pentecost. For we all know how hard it is to find unity. And unity finds its most direct expression when we care for one another, when we love one another. For Luke, as well as the early Christians, being filled with the Holy Spirit is not only about proclaiming the word of God, but it's also about sharing our possessions with those in need. And it's because of our oneness that we're able to do that. There are actually two words that are used here in Greek that are translated possessions. One concerns land and property, which we've already talked a little bit about, but the other is actually a much more general term. And one of the translations actually says, being at one's disposal. I love that because then it's not about just tangible possessions. It's, it has this sense that it's actually about giving of our very selves, Sharing of our experiences, sharing of our gifts, sharing of our talents, sharing of our pain, sharing of whatever it is that God has placed within us. These early believers weren't monastics, and this isn't some form of communism as some people sometimes accuse. They lived in their own homes, but after becoming Christians, they no longer considered what they possessed their own private property. They were willing to make it available if God called them to do that. They weren't under compulsion to do it. Some of the Jewish sects, like the Essenes, actually required you to submit your land and property when you joined the community. They were able to share it when they felt called by God. Sounds a lot like what we talked about in January as part of our next generosity series. But for those of us with a Western individualistic mindset, we sometimes struggle with this idea. We struggle with anything that asks us to live a more communal life. In fact, in a book written in 1999, Divided by Faith, the author actually makes the argument that it's the thing that most separates white evangelicals from evangelicals that are part of communities of color. The fact is what makes it especially different, it makes it actually really difficult, this fact, to have discussions around race, around inequality, around a lot of particular issues that end up dividing our communities. The view that prejudiced individuals are the essence of the race problem, of course, reflects a focus on the individual as opposed to the larger social units. Absent is the idea that poor relationships might actually be shaped by social structures, by laws, by the way institutions operate, or by forms of segregation. Far too often when we have times of, corp of uh, reflection and repentance, we focus only on our individual sins rather than on our corporate sins as a body. So these verses from these opening chapters sound good, right? But then we actually turn the page and we find that almost immediately there are challenges that destroy that unity. Many of you know the story of Ananias and Sapphira, who right after presenting this vision, when they come to the apostles, they're telling them, oh, we're bringing all the proceeds from the sale of our property, when it turns out they're only bringing a part. And when the deception is revealed, they actually drop dead at the apostles' feet. If we had something like that happen here, I think we'd be a little more careful about lying. So as we think about what it means to live in unity, there's a couple of questions that we should be asking ourselves. Is there a conflict or a disagreement that's keeping you from being unified in mind and soul with others at Grace? 
Do you look at issues only as they impact you as an individual or a family? Or do you try to think about the impact of your decision on the wider community, either within the church or beyond the walls? Ordinary life can be hard, and that's where we find the early church in Acts 6. In those days when the number of disciples were increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. There was a conflict in the church, and we'll get to the specifics of that conflict in a moment. But as I studied this passage and others throughout Acts, one particular phrase kept coming back to me. Choose men that are full of the Spirit. What does that phrase mean, full of the Spirit? Filled, full, complete. In Mark 4, the same Greek word is used for fully ripened grain. In Matthew and Luke, that word is used to describe the baskets full of the abundance of bread and fish that miraculously appeared as Jesus fed the 5,000. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, the word describes Abraham and Isaac as being full of years. So full means mature. This is a favorite word of Luke. In fact, it's the same word that he uses of Jesus as Jesus came out of the waters of baptism and then was drawn in the desert to be tempted. So perhaps Luke is trying to make the connection that these men, when they were chosen, they were following in Jesus' footsteps. They were bearing testimony to the life that he lived by the way they lived their life. But then this word is also used in a very interesting way later in the book of Acts to describe Dorcas as a woman who is full of good deeds. And the words for good deeds are translated as action, practical proof, beneficial, fertile, firm, dependable, helpful. In fact, Dorcas helped the poor so much that when she died, the entire community wept because she had done so much. I don't know if you've heard people say, but would Arlington or Lexington or Medford, if our community disappeared, would people weep? Do they know us well enough? Do they see what we do enough that they would miss us if we were gone? Because that's the test of connection and of love. When the apostles realized they needed to find someone to address the conflict that had arisen, they didn't actually make this choice quickly. Pastor Ruthie talked about that a couple of weeks ago. The word for choose actually can be translated as visit or look for. There's a searching quality to this word, an implication that they are already known. 
This is one of the things that I've been wanting to see here at East Lexington is that we know one another's stories and experiences so that when a need arises, I don't have to stand up and just go, hey, is anyone interested? I already know people's stories. I know what God has deposited in them. I know what needs to be done and try to match people up. And I get the sense that that's what happened with these men in Acts. One of the first things that we did when we began to implement the Multicultural Church Initiative was to choose men and women that represented as much as possible the breadth of cultural diversity in our congregation. Different cultures, different generations, recent immigrants, and people who had lived here multiple generations. We knew that there were connections with different parts of Grace Chapel that those leaders could actually could connect in ways that those of us that had been leaders for a while might not be able to. But each of these leaders also, and more importantly, were exactly what we just described. They were mature leaders. Many of them had come from other churches where they had been elders and God had drawn them to Grace Chapel for what he wanted to do among us. I learned to listen to these leaders. I learned to listen well because they had much to teach me. In many ways, they knew far more than I did about where God was taking us. So the second thing we learned this morning is when we're attentive to the Holy Spirit, we become mature leaders full of faith, wisdom, grace, and good deeds. So how is God maturing you as a leader these days? Are you putting yourself in places, maybe places that don't seem like a really big deal at the moment in order for God to mature you into the kind of leader that he wants to be? I sense oftentimes that God puts experiences into us for years before he reveals what it is that he wants us to do with those experiences. And so are you attentive to what God, where God is placing you now and what he's doing in your life? All right, so finally we can dig into the actual conflict, the kind of conflict that arises in our ordinary life all the time. And these leaders that were chosen are essential to understanding why they were just the right leaders to solve this particular conflict. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked. At Pentecost, everyone had celebrated all of the many cultures that had gathered, all of the many languages that were being represented. The unifying presence of the Holy Spirit seemed to override any of the cultural conflicts that must have existed in a city as large as Jerusalem with so many people coming together. This conflict isn't just an oversight. It isn't just a mistake, even though that's the implication of the scripture. I think it's likely that there was much more going on beneath the surface. In fact, it's quite possible that there was outright discrimination going on. These Hellenists were likely Jews that had lived scattered all over the Roman Empire and had returned to Jerusalem. Possibly they spoke only Greek and no Hebraic languages. In fact, one commentator suggested that they were probably even under suspicion by reason of their birth, their speech, or both. Hebraic superiority was widespread. In fact, there's even evidence that there may have been segregated synagogues by culture in Jerusalem. Sound familiar? Now, some of you might be saying, surely not. You have to be exaggerating. That wouldn't happen in the early church. The early church was all about good things, right? 
But that's what I love about scripture. I love its honesty. The book of Acts doesn't try to sweep conflict under the rug. In fact, this is the first of many conflicts that the book of Acts talks about where different people from different cultures came together and they couldn't agree on, on the way forward. And yet, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, they would come together and they would pray and they would find a way forward. They would find leaders that were not only full of the Spirit, but also because of their cultural background, because they were Greeks, they would actually be able to gain the trust of these people that were being overlooked, these widows that were being overlooked. But it isn't just the cultural connection that makes them good leaders. That, this verse in some ways has always bothered me because it makes it sound like the responsibility that they've been given was a very menial task. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. But if you dig into the word tables, it actually is the same word that's used for money changers. So again, this isn't just a food program, but this is actually about distribution of all kinds of funds. So we're talking about inequity again that's been overlooked. Two weeks ago, at the Greater Boston Minister's Prayer Summit, I heard a remarkable testimony from an African pastor who has served at a church in Somerville for the last 20 years. He said, I believe so I can see the invisible, so I can do the impossible in Jesus' name. And the statement if you just let it sit with you, is very profound, but it's even more profound when you know and can see that he is a blind pastor. This pastor has learned to see with the eyes of faith. He believes that through Hebrews 11, the kind of faith that's described in Hebrews 11, that we all have eyes of faith that aren't dependent upon what we physically see. His testimony helped me shape this final thing that we learned today. When we are attentive to the Holy Spirit, we are able to see what is often invisible to others. Maybe some of you have been wondering throughout this sermon how we responded to that initial conflict regarding the mural. So now the rest of the story. And I realize I just dated myself because perhaps there's some of you that have no idea who Paul Harvey is or his radio program, but that's okay. I still love that phrase. And now, the rest of the story. When I first heard about the complaint of this young Asian American woman about the slanted eyes on the Kidstown figure, I don't know how many of you picked that up on the first one that that might have been what offended them. Anybody? It was tempting. It really was tempting to overlook her concern to discount it even. After all, these are only cartoon figures. Surely, surely she's overreacting and this isn't something that we really need to worry about. And there were people on staff that said that. But fortunately, one of my multicultural leaders was someone of Korean descent who had been raised in the United States. But he was also an incredible leader. He had spiritual discernment and he had marketing skills. He, he did marketing for his business. So he decided, I'm going to do my own market research, and I'm going to see if I can get to the bottom of why this woman might be offended by this particular cartoon figure. 
So he did that research through the Korean speaking life community that we had at the time and discerned that Koreans who had come here as adults were not offended by the figure, but Koreans that had been raised here as children were. And so initially we kind of, and he said it was very consistent within the group. And so we were going, well, that's interesting. But what we realized as we thought about it more is the reason why the ones that had been raised here as children were offended is because they'd been teased as children. They'd been teased about their eyes. And so to look what for most of us would seem like something not very important, when they looked at it, it brought back pain, brought pain to their eyes. And what I would learn like almost a year later is that for Asian American women, the number one surgery that happens is plastic surgery on their eyes because they don't want their eyes to look Asian. They want their eyes to look American. It just broke my heart. And if we hadn't walked through this story with this Kidstown character, I would have never ever even known that that was an issue and that that was out there. So when I finally did get a chance to talk to this woman and to meet her and to share with her what we, our solution, <laughs> which really wasn't very much, all we did was change the eyes. I asked her, I said, well, I said, so does that make things better? And she actually looked at me and she said, you know, honestly, it doesn't really matter what you did. What matters is that you took my concern seriously. You listened to me. You didn't discount it. You didn't tell me that I was overreacting. I don't, know she, I don't know if she knew how close we came to saying that, but fortunately God had stopped us from going that route. What she said was, is what mattered most is that you listened well. So there's so many things like this in society that are invisible. And if we hadn't walked through, if I hadn't been reminded of this story in Acts chapter 6, I might not have realized that God has a very unique calling on this congregation. In fact, the authors of Divided by Faith would say that it is actually this invisibility is at the root of so much what, of what is happening at Ferguson and Staten Island and Baltimore. Most white evangelicals fail to recognize the institutionalization of racism. They often think and act as if these problems do not exist, as undetected cancer that remains untreated thrives and destroys. So unrecognized deaths of racial division and inequality go largely unaddressed, and they thrive and divide and destroy. The things in society that we cannot see act like a cancer. Did you hear that? And so God's calling us to be physicians and to be able to diagnose some of those things so that we can be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world around us. I've said several times that we at East Lexington are unique. There is no ethnicity in this congregation that is greater than 50%. There is much that needs to be seen in our society. And I believe God is gathering a group of people here to see things that are invisible to others. So before we close today, what, God, what might God be asking of us? Well, I think first I would ask over the next few weeks and months, would you each pray that God would open your eyes up to something invisible? 
in our congregation. Maybe it's taking that extra step to get to know someone beyond those of the people that you already know in your neighborhood or in your uh, town. Actually, Jocelyn's been sharing some really fun things that she's got some ideas that she has planned for this summer that may help us to connect better with our neighborhoods. And so she's going to be sharing more about that in the next few weeks. So anyway, that leads us to our big idea for the morning. Leaders that are able to see the invisible can be used by God to do remarkable things. Two of the seven men that are listed in Acts 6 went on to accomplish really remarkable things. Stephen would actually go through his own experience of bold proclamation before the Sanhedrin. And unfortunately, he would end up as the first Christian martyr. But Philip actually became one of the first cross-cultural missionaries as he went and preached in Samaria. And then he was taken out one time and he ended up spotting an Ethiopian eunuch and he went up to him and shared with him from the scripture and then baptized him along the side of the road. Later in Acts, we will actually hear Philip was referred to as one who was one of the seven. So that even if Stephen and Philip are the only ones that are recorded, you get the sense that these seven men changed the early church. Seven men. We're a lot more than seven men here. I believe God has much in store for us if we'll learn how to open up our eyes. We need to be able to love more and do what matters most from an eternal perspective as we attend to those things that flow directly from the heart of God. Unashamed proclamation of the gospel is the critical starting point. That's what changes us. That's what makes us into the people that God wants us to be. But love is the evidence of that transforming power in our lives. So let's go back to the words that we heard at the beginning, just a few of them. It's not a sign in our yards. It's not a cause that we've joined. It's not a phrase on a coin. It's the change in our hearts. It might be the pain that we share and it might be the time that we spend. It might actually be a war that we decide not to fight. It might mean backing down from our pride in a conversation. God needs hands that are open, reaching out for broken hearts because that's the only way that this world is ever going to know who God is. Love is the evidence. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just pray for this congregation of people that you have gathered here today. Lord, you gave us an amazing experience last Sunday, but now we have to learn how to walk in the Spirit in our everyday life. And so, Lord, whatever you might have used this morning of my, my inadequate words, Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would be doing a work in the hearts of the people that are gathered to hear, that you might be opening up their eyes in the next few days and weeks and months, because, Lord, I believe each person that is here is not here by mistake, but that you have something in store for them. Lord, continue to gather us together as a community, a community that loves and cares for one another. Help us to learn to know one another at a deep level. Let us not just simply be people that walk into the sanctuary and pass one another and then leave and go back to our lives. Lord, draw us together. Help us to be 
that kind of community of believers that shares everything they have. And when people come into our midst that have needs, Lord, may we be prepared and equipped to respond. Amen.